Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. There's a lot to talk about today, so let's get right at it. If that music, that's the theme for Sesame Street, brings back memories for you, well, you're not alone, and you're going to want to hang around. Later on in the show, Sonia Manzano, who played Maria on the classic kid show for 44 years, stops by to talk about a new documentary called Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street. Also stopping by today is Jonathan Meberg. You may know him as the singer of the Austin, Texas-based indie rock band Shearwater, but he's not here today to talk about music. Today, he'll talk about his other passion, a rare bird known as the striated caracaris, and his book, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. First, though, let's meet author Jeff Vandermeer. He's been called one of the most remarkable practitioners of the literary fantastic in America today. His novel, Annihilation, won many awards and was adapted into a Hollywood film starring Natalie Portman. Several other adaptations of his novels will soon be coming your way via Netflix, but today we're here to talk about his latest novel, Hummingbird Salamander, a speculative thriller of dark conspiracy, endangered species, and the possible end of all things. Here's Jeff Vandermeer via Zoom from his home in Florida. This is a book that deals with eco-terrorism, uh, wildlife trafficking, uh, climate change. Uh, what sparked the story? Uh, you know, there's a couple of things. Usually I there's some kind of subconscious impulse, and then there's also a conscious one. And I was talking to environmental activism uh, students in colleges, and they liked my prior novel, Annihilation, which grappled with these issues. But they also said, we'd like something more direct. And so I kind of put that into my subconscious and said, how can I do something more direct that isn't an essay? And, uh, you know, I love the thriller structure. I, 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 you know, read a lot of thrillers and mysteries and, and I've done a noir fantasy before. So it kind of struck me that this would be a useful thing. Uh, and then I had this idea of this woman who's given this piece of taxidermy that kind of just unravels her life by trying to explore the mystery behind why she's been given it by someone she doesn't even know. Uh, and that's kind of how it started. So this book could be categorized in many different ways. And mm -hmm. I know that we, we don't want to pigeonhole things so much. Right. It does feel different than some of your other mm -hmm. books. The, yeah. the, the new weird novels uh, have a different tone to them than mm -hmm. this one does. This one feels much more in touch with, with our world. Yeah. Um, how would you describe it to someone who uh, is in the bookstore looking at the cover, wondering whether they should pick it up or not? You know, I, I usually describe it as an eco thriller because, you know, obviously the environment it has a huge impact on just the structure of, of the novel and, and the mystery. And it definitely follows the, the beats and progressions, I think, of a thriller with a little bit of a hybrid mystery uh, thrown in there. Um, it's not really that much of a science fiction book. I think of it as existing, you know, as it goes along in our immediate past, our present, and like 10 seconds into the future. So, um, you know, I'm comfortable comfortable with like eco thriller or something like that. I love the 10 seconds in the future too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, such a great, uh, such a great hook, right? It's, it's the tough, idea right? Cause it feels like we're living in 10 seconds in the future, the way things are playing out. It feels like we're living in the science fictional future, sure <laughs> sometimes does. in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Jane Smith, the protagonist mm -hmm. of the book. Um, yeah. Tell me about the inspiration for her character. Yeah, she's a little cagey. I mean, her name isn't uh, actually Jane. She won't give her a real name because she's concerned. She's paranoid about, you know, people reading the account and somehow figuring out stuff about her family and whatnot. Uh, and I actually still don't even know her real name. <laughs> somehow, if I knew the real name, somehow I, I would know less about the character. But, you know, she's the security expert who you know, seems to have a pretty normal life on the on the outside. She does have kind of a dysfunctional uh, childhood, having grown up on this very peculiar farm that you find out about. Uh, but, you know, she has a nice life in suburbs and, and uh, she has this nice job. And I think in part what I was fascinated by is what happens to a person who seems like supremely confident in one area you know, the security analyst who feels like she knows the surveillance business when they're thrust into a situation where they should prosper. But in fact, 
the very fact that they're knowledgeable makes them maybe not as on guard about what's going on. So as soon as she gets this hummingbird, she's deep in it and she doesn't realize it. She doesn't realize that the very act of going to the storage unit and finding this thing has set off a series of events. So I like the idea of her getting enmeshed in it. I like the physicality of the character. I like the idea of this very physically strong woman who may not always react the way you would expect uh, in certain situations. And when you're creating a character like that, tell me a little bit about what kind of research you would do mm. or or not. I mean, is she a complete flight of fantasy? Or, you know, I thought of like Clarice Starling a little mm. bit when I was reading this. I thought of a number of characters sort of came to mind, but how does it work mm -hmm. for you as the creator? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I I glut myself on thrillers, horror movies, and and mysteries, so it's hard for me to like distinguish an individual influence. But right? I think it's really kind of important that it's just like the substrata in the back of your mind. And the same with the the books that might have influenced it. Uh, but there are two real life influences for uh, Jane, and just particular parts of her category uh, of her personality. One is that that my wife Anne is was a software manager for 30 plus years in a very male dominated field. Uh, and Jane, of course, works in a workplace that's very male dominated as well and uh, and feels kind of isolated by that. And so I I asked Anne a lot of questions about that. It's a slightly different field surveillance uh, security analyst, but mm -hmm. I felt like there was a, there were parallels. So she was able to give me some good insights into what that was like. And then you know, it's very different for like Jane going to the gym because she is a, a weightlifter and everything. But but the only thing I've ever been able to consistently do uh, until the pandemic struck and there was no gym access is to lift heavy things <laughs> like a jogging never, never worked for me. <laughs> Hiking works and lifting heavy things. And um, so I know something about going to the gym and gym life and being a gym rat at certain points in my life. And um, so I thought transferring that to Jane, even though it would be a very different experience for her because of her physicality and, and, and possibly because of being a woman, that, that, that that was the personal thing that I could, you know, the details that I could get right. You're listening to my interview with Jeff Vandermeer, author of Hummingbird Salamander. You still write all the first drafts of your books in longhand? <laughs> yes, I do. It drives my dad, the scientist, uh, a little nuts because <laughs> he's all about efficiency and you know doing things in a practical way but but i really i really like the physicality of writing longhand and i also like where it gets me process wise uh it, you know i i type a little too fast uh so so it slows me down a little bit uh and then i will type up the rough draft and then i do the thing that really drives my dad nuts uh, i will mark it up and then i will rewrite it in longhand <laughs> and then i will type it up again and then rewrite it long. And it's kind of like kneading dough. I'm just trying to get it to the right, you know, right. And sometimes if I have like the first, you know, 30 pages done right that way, then I will type into the computer. It just depends on how I'm feeling about the style. And you say you type very fast. Does the, the longhand give you the opportunity to really dig in and think about things in a way that you might not, if you it, were it, simply doing the first draft on a computer? Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other thing about it is I really do get a lot of inspiration while I'm just hiking or walking. It's it's kind of like being in the moment and away from the house, you know, puts me in the, a, a creative mood. So I'm also writing down scene fragments and stuff on, uh, you know, note cards, which I find very useful because then I can put them in book order and then type that up in, in book order. So usually when I start a novel, I have like 30,000 words of scene fragments, bits of dialogue uh, in, in scene order. And that, that, that kind of gives me some idea and perspective of, of where I am. Uh, you know, so, so the whole thing is longhand from the very beginning. And, and I find that useful. So when you start, do you know where the story is going to mm -hmm. end? I find it interesting when you say uh, that the character Jane that you create, you don't even know her name. Well, mm -hmm. ideally, as the creator, you would, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, I wonder... Uh, if that sort of sense of, of mystery and not knowing applies to the very beginning of a book as you start, uh, do you know where it's going to end? Yeah, it really depends on the book. And, you know, there's, but there's one thing I learned early on and, and it's because uh, this is really hilarious. I think um, I literally had a lot of short stories that just ended with people jumping off of cliffs, uh, falling off of cliffs. And just basically it was kind of clear that I didn't understand what cliffhanger meant. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, what I learned is that if I didn't really have a sense in my head before I started writing of some kind of ending, even if it changed by the time I got there, uh, that I'd never finished the thing. Uh, and that's why I had so many weird endings to, to my early work. Uh, so yeah, so I have to have an idea of the ending, even if it changes. I have to have a strong idea of the character, the style it's being told in. 
And then also this weird accretion of detail where I have like 30,000 words of notes. That seems to be the, the critical mass point uh, before I start writing. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it is having that distance from the character. The very fact that Jane is the kind of person who won't share her name is a character detail that tells me something very profound about her. Tell me about your love of nature. The standard answer I give is, you know, I grew up in Fiji because my parents were in the Peace Corps. They were involved in things that took us out into nature. Nature was right at our doorstep because our house was right down from Suva Harbor, so I could just walk down to the beach. Um, as far as I was concerned as a kid, that's just the way the world was, you know. Uh, and then when we came back uh, from Fiji, we spent two years in Ithaca and got there in the middle of winter. So if you can imagine, uh, <laughs> I really was that really imprinted on me that, yep. that no, this was not the same everywhere. <laughs> and that's that's kind of why we moved to Florida. Um, and so, you know, I have to be aware of this this question, because in North Florida, we have one of the most biodiverse uh, areas in the world right now. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of development. There are a lot of national and state parks. Uh, and so I have to be aware of the fact that my view of nature may not be the same as 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 most people reading reading a book like this, uh, you know. But 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 there's some of the same pressures exist. So so we've been rewilding our yard because there were a lot of invasive plants because a lot of people landscape with plants from big box stores, not realizing that they then escape and they they become a real problem in the landscape. And then suddenly wildlife has nothing to eat, and birds while they're migrating have nothing to eat either. So so that's what I've been focusing on is this kind of localized half acre. Um, where the where the love comes from is just simply the fact that I always thought it was part of the world, um, mm -hmm. and I thought that it was important. and And it it struck me early on too that a lot of, not a lot of people were writing about it the way that I thought it should be written about. Did you start birding while you were living in Fiji? I did, and uh, you know, one uh, very cherished possession is I have a black and white booklet of bird species of Fiji. I'm I'm afraid to look at it now for fear that. Half of them are no longer with us. I have no idea. I hopefully not. But, uh, but so I had this, and I did bird counts and whatnot. Uh, in part because my dad uh, was studying rhinoceros beetles, and he was very, you know, into the science. So I thought, well, I'll do this thing that's kind of like that. But I'm not really interested in rhinoceros beetles, so I'll I'll look at birds. Uh, and then and then it just kind of became narrative. Like I became a little bit bored with just like there's a bird. <laughs> and, and so I, I found these Aesop's fables that had birds in them. And after I read them, I, I was kind of like influenced by that. And I rewrote them on my own. And, and not only was I writing about birds, but I also was learning how to write because that's how I learned to write. I actually would copy stuff from memory, uh, write it down again. And then I would look at the original, compare them and see where I had maybe done maybe one little detail that was, I thought, unique. And, and the rest was, of course, crap compared to the original, but it was useful. <laughs> And have you always had a facility with words? You know, I, I think that one thing that my parents really did that was helpful is they read to us from a very early age. And so I remember them reading William Blake to us <laughs> probably earlier than we should have had it. And a lot of British children's classics and then this kind of riotous kind of collection of cultures. So I had access to uh, book, uh, comic books in English from India that were comic books of the Mahabharata and a Ramayana as if they were superheroes, basically, right. you know, along with Tintin and Asterix and stuff like that. So there's this, there's just this riotous bunch of influences in the backdrop that, that, that made me want to write, I think. Uh, and that's really where it came from. And I think that those influences show through or the, 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 the multiple influences show through in the kinds of books that you've written, because mm -hmm. uh, there is a different tone to, uh, the trilogy than there is to uh, the new weird stuff. Mm -hmm. And then again, to yeah. hummingbird salamanders. So I guess perhaps that is just uh, the result of being exposed to a great many things, uh, all playing on an equal playing field, William Blake and comic yes. books from India uh, being treated kind of sort of the same. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was a really important lesson that my parents didn't differentiate between these things and they let me have access to all of this. And they also gave me books before I could understand them, which I think was actually a great gift. So, you know, at the age of eight, they gave me a copy of Fellowship of the Ring, <laughs> which was way beyond my reading comprehension yeah. level. So it was actually extremely mysterious to me. Like it was this magical object that I had to kind of find the key for, even to the point where like passages of like pastoral uh you know description is there go taking a very long time to get from one place to another as an adult was very mysterious to me right. as a kid too so i think that was that was useful in terms of like putting in this this mystery in my head about writing you know writing was this mysterious thing that you couldn't quite understand <laughs>
Yeah, 10 pages of descriptions of uh, oh, a journey right. on foot. And of course, Tom Bombadil, which I still can't quite as an adult read. <laughs> <but> sorry. <laughs> Are you working on something new right now? Do you always have something happening? Yeah, I always have something happening. And it's funny because in the lead up to Hummingbird Salamander, I was, I was focused on that. But but my brain is always like giving me some diversion, mm. something I'm not supposed to be working on that, of course, then I want to work on. And I, I've, I've learned to actually do that. So I've, I've written a long novella called Subject 680, which is, a, again, about surveillance in a certain way. Uh, and I'm working on a new uh, YA novel. Uh, it's a sequel to Peculiar Peril, the one I had out last summer. And I have a new adult novel, Drone Love, that I'm really excited about that I'm working on. You're listening to my interview with Jeff Vandermeer, author of Hummingbird Salamander, available now wherever fine books are sold. And there's various film projects and things that have been happening over the last few years. And it, this uh, is a pretty good time. You know, it's it a, is. It, 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 there's a lot going on here. It, it there must is. Be. I mean, AMC is developing a series for Born, uh, and I'm very excited about that. And of course, Hummingbird is with Netflix, and um, I tend to feed off of that stuff. It it it, it, it excites me. Sometimes it overwhelms me, but in general, it, it's it's very good for the creative process. How involved are you with those deals and and with mm. the production of the shows, or are you like I cash the check and it's a hit? If the yeah, what's it? You all say <laughs> if the check if the check clears, it's a hit. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, I learned a lot from Annihilation, even though the movie is so significantly <laughs> different than the book. Um, I think readers have been very kind because a lot of readers came to the book from the movie and they actually appreciated that they were different rather than the same thing. And usually it doesn't work that way. You know? So uh, but, you know, not actually having much to do with Annihilation, but being allowed to view the process and get a sense of where the pressure points were was really important because I do just learn from experience and mimicry. And so with Born and with Hummingbird Salamander, I'm a creative consultant on both. And I, I think I know how I can add to the conversation, keep the things about the environment and whatnot that need to be, I think, uh, loyal to the book uh, there without stepping on the toes of other creators who may have amazing visions for how to 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 do stuff like Born is a I think a challenge just because there's a giant flying bear in it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> among other things so so um, it's exciting and and hopefully I will be of use uh, and not in the way. You mentioned that Annihilation is significantly different than the book. <laughs> I think it was Raymond Chandler who said somebody asked him how do you feel about Hollywood ruining all your books? And he says, my books aren't ruined. They're right up there on the shelf. Right on the shelf so, it, it, you know, you have to have that kind of attitude or it might drive you crazy. How do you feel about it? Um, well, it was this weird thing where I was initially really disappointed about, uh, you know, among, among a few things, the fact that, uh, well, I mean, I saw a rough cut of the movie. So I saw a rough cut of the movie, whereas I recall like the, the bear scene where it says, help me was just voiced by somebody just to have a voice in there, right. Right. you know, so, so it was very hard to like even see the film. Uh, but, but I think that the, the main thing is that even though the environmental themes weren't really in there anymore, the weird feedback loop was that the movie did well enough that I got to talk about the environment more more people, you know, did the book. So overall it was this, this win for the things that were important to me. Uh, and I do think that the last third of the, the movie is actually much more surreal and stranger than, than the book itself, which I appreciated. That was Jeff Vandermeer, author of Hummingbird Salamander. You can find that book wherever fine books are sold. Now let's meet Jonathan Meeberg. He's not only the singer of the indie rock band Shearwater, but he's written a fascinating book called A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. I start this interview by talking about the fellowship that he was awarded in 1997 to travel to remote communities around the world. That's the trip that ignited his love of birding. But how did it happen? Well, uh, it was very much by accident. Uh, I was 21 years old at the time, so I have to imagine a 21-year-old version of me who'd never left the southeastern United States, and I was an English major. And I had this idea that I really wanted to, to go to human communities that were isolated uh, culturally, geographically, and document what life was like there. Uh, kind of a harebrained idea as I think about it now, but uh, at the time it meant that my poor parents had to put me on a plane to Tierra del Fuego and wave goodbye. And when I got to Tierra del Fuego, one of the places I realized you could get to from there was the Falklands. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, the Tierra del Fuego is the very southern tip of South America, and the Falklands uh, lie just to the east of it. 
but and the Falklands are a group of islands who you 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 may have <laughs> remember from watching The Crown recently. Uh, but they're uh, it's it's a group of actually eight hundred islands. Uh, there are two main islands that people live on, and there's it's a small human population of about three thousand people who are culturally British, and uh, so they're they're very they're all alone down there in that sense. But what I hadn't realized when I got there was that the Falklands have a uh, ecological importance uh, that is very different from, uh, but just as striking as the the, the human culture that's there. Mm -hmm. uh, the islands that the tiny islands that surround the two main islands, the hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, preserve in some places a version of the islands as they were before humans ever arrived there. And the Falklands have the distinction of being one of very few places in the entire New World that Europeans actually discovered, so far as we know. Uh, we've never found any evidence that Amerindian people ever visited the Falklands. And why I'm giving you all this backstory is because when you go there, the way that the animals behave towards you is very, very strange. I visited one island with the idea that I could see penguins there because I thought, even though I wasn't all that interested in birds, I thought, well, you shouldn't pass up a chance to see penguins in the wild. And so I went there and it was astonished to meet not only penguins who sort of acted like I didn't really exist, but these dark uh, sort of hawk-like, crow-like birds. It was like if you mashed up a raven and a red-tailed hawk that liked to run around on the ground and just came right up to me and stared at me as if to say, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I thought the same thing back at them. Uh, what is this? Why haven't I ever heard of anything like this? What is this animal? And this was the same thought as it turned out that Charles Darwin had back in 1833 when he first visited the Falklands as a 21-year-old person and uh, was so struck by them that he spent more ink in the Voyage of the Beagle on these birds than he did on any other bird species. They're called striated caracaras today, and they're, they became the sort of MacGuffin of my book because I had the same questions that Darwin did. What were these? What were they doing here down at the very bottom of the world? And why did they act like this? <laughs> and this is what inspired this love of birding. You said in that answer, you didn't really care that much about birds. What was it, that aha moment when you met them? They they <laughs> were friendly. They behaved differently. Yeah, um, I don't know about friendly. That a lifetime experience and you walk away. But instead, the rest of your life... Uh, has been spent in pursuit of of birding and and studying this sort of thing. Yeah, there's certainly there's been a, a a thread of my life that's never left that moment in some ways. Um, it it was just I don't know. I think if I don't feel particularly special in this way, I think if I sat any person down with these birds for five minutes, you'd have about the same reaction that I did. They are just so strikingly conscious, and so unlike what you think. Not just a bird of prey but a wild animal ought to be like. I mean, we're used to, to cats and dogs who sort of know what we're about, but they've lived with us for thousands of years at this point. These are animals that have very little experience with human beings. And you get a sense looking at them that you've sort of stepped through a door into the dream time or something. Like um, you realize that animals didn't always run away. That's something they had to learn to do. And the people who walked over the Bering Strait into the Americas 15,000 years ago encountered two entire continents full of wildlife that was like this. And uh, Darwin said that they were kind of like flying raccoons. I think I said that. I, I don't want to put words yeah. in Darwin's mouth. But, but he did call them uh, tame and mischievous, uh, quarrelsome and passionate, uh, and uh, noted that they stole items from the crew of the Beagle, like uh, hats and um, a, a small, uh, a caterer's compass in a red Morocco leather case, which was never recovered. He said the, and what these birds were doing with these items was completely mysterious to him. Uh, what a bird's going to do with a hat, you don't know, but they, they just seem intensely curious about anything they haven't seen before. And that attraction to novelty is something that, you know, that also marks our species, mm -hmm. but it's very weird to see in a wild animal because it seems like a very dangerous behavior. It almost sounds like uh, an animated cartoon. These yes. charming characters come out of nowhere, these birds that no one's ever seen before. They steal things. They steal your hats. They steal all that sort of like, it sounds like something Disney might make. 
Yeah, it, it, they have a, they definitely have a charm to them. And what, what I learned is I, I started trying to answer these questions because Darwin sort of posed them and then set them aside and went on to other things. But so they just sat there on the shelf. And um, it's not as if I was the first person ever to notice these birds, but in the Falklands, they were either out of sight or if they were, if they lived near you, they were so numerous that they were sort of invisible. Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that in the world, we think the population of this species, striated caracaras, is not much bigger than the population of giant pandas. It's really small mm -hmm. in the thousands. Uh, but so, it, it, but in answering this question of what were these birds, then I, I sort of started tracing their lineage and found that, the, learned rather, that there were uh, nine other species of caracaras, uh, almost entirely in South America, where they occur in every single kind of habitat. And part of that is because, as Darwin noticed, um, there are no crows in South America. There are some jays, which are crow relatives that live in the tropics, but there's no big black crows or ravens or anything like that. And it's almost as if instead they're these things, which actually are part of the falcon family. And it's sort of as if you tried to build a set of crows on a falcon chassis. <laughs> <laughs> but people who study birds of prey have, have often kind of steered clear of these things because they don't act the way birds of prey are supposed to, you know, they're... Uh, they're curious, they're social, they're opportunistic, they'll eat bread, they'll eat uh, all kinds of, you know, they don't just catch and kill living prey. And uh, so they, they confoundingly refuse to, to obey the stereotype of what a, a, you know, a good falcon or hawk or eagle is supposed to be. You're listening to my interview with Jonathan Meberg, author of A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey, available now wherever you buy fine books. Well, when I think of a bird of prey, I think the first word that pops into my head is menacing. That's part of that's part of the of the job description. I think you know you have to be regal and and intimidating and and uh, and somewhat menacing. And you found the complete opposite with these caracaras. Yeah, I mean, if if you're one of you know if you're a fly grub or if you're a, um, a if you were a rotting uh, corpse of some kind, I guess <laughs> you might find them menacing. But uh, you know, what the the qualities we attribute to birds of prey say more about us than they do about them. Um, these are just living dinosaurs who are trying to survive in the ways that work best for them. One of the species of caracaras uh, has a tropical species called a red-throated caracara. Lives in family groups of between three and twelve individuals of multiple males and females. They build nests out of giant bromeliads and they eat mostly wasps' nests. I mean, they're probably the weirdest uh, bird of prey that there is in the world. And what, one sort of interesting evolutionary aside to this is that recent research revealed that falcons are more closely related to parrots than they are to other birds of prey, to hawks or eagles or owls. And their common ancestor probably lived in, um, I think, in Antarctica when it was warm. Yeah. And that the ancestors of the falcons came up into South America, diversified there, and then uh, one lineage of them moved into the northern world and became all of the the birds that we think of when we think of falcons, peregrines and merlins and kestrels and things like that. But the greatest diversity of falcons is still in South America, and the caracaras are a big part of it. Do you ever kind of map your your work life around your or your work life as a musician uh, around your work life as a, a birder? Uh, if only. I mean, usually when we're on tour, it's it's one show after another after another. And, and I mean, the only birding I get to do is, is out of the van. Birding in and of itself, even though I enjoy it, is, uh, is it feels almost separate from the, the sort of deep dive into the history of the evolution of the landscapes and wildlife of planet Earth that this bird led me on. Um, I really felt like it was uh, it was guiding. They were guiding me. Um, and it was just on me to try to, to understand this story that they were showing me. So the resulting book is really multifaceted. It is about evolution. There's a bit of biography of William Henry Hudson in here. It's about your travels, your adventures. It's about natural history. Tell me about binding all of those elements together uh, into one book that that uh, makes sense that 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 reads like a book and not a, a a number of influences thrown together. Well, it it took a time, and from the moment I first saw them until now, it's been almost twenty five years. Mm. So, 
I think trying to, I, mostly I just tried to cling to those those three questions about the bird, um, even though like them I'm easily distracted, I'm easily sort of drawn into different subjects and, and asides and alleyways, and so the book pursues these as as much as it can without completely losing sight of the the original goal, or at least that's the hope. But this is the kind of journey that I like. Uh, you know, I like trails that meander uh, a great deal, and the 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 fun of, of any journey really is, is, is getting there. Uh, and so the, the book is a sort of a, a, it's a yarn in some ways. All you need to bring to it is you don't need to know anything about birds. You just need to be a little bit curious about the natural world and I'll take you the rest of the way because that's the journey that I went on. That was Jonathan Meberg. Find his book, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey, wherever you buy fine books. Next up, The Way to Sesame Street. give you a nostalgic blast? I mean, how could it not? Sure does for me. It's the theme from Sesame Street, the classic children's television series that's been on the air since, get this, 1969. Big Bird, Bert and Ernie, Elmo, Oscar the Grouch not only taught kids how to read, write, and count, but also the importance of relationships, ethics, and emotions. A new documentary, Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, on VOD and digital right now is a behind-the-scenes look at the creation of the show from the people who were there, including my guest today, Sonia Manzano, who played Maria on the show for 44 years. Sonia joins me via Zoom from Sesame Street. You're listening to my interview with Sonia Manzano, who talks about playing Maria on Sesame Street for 44 years in the new documentary, Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, now on VOD. I have to tell you, I was uh, equal parts entertained and emotional while watching it. I grew up watching Sesame Street, and it brought back a flood of memories and things that I hadn't seen in years. And I remembered the lyrics to the songs. I remembered the jokes. Uh, my wife and I sat here kind of in between laughing and crying <laughs> almost the entire running time. No, I understand your feeling exactly. I thought I knew everything about the show. And I also uh, learned or relearned and mm -hmm. experienced and laughed and uh you know, and my heart pitter-pattered all throughout. <laughs> well, it's it's a lovely film, but I want to start talking to you by uh, going back quite a ways. So at Carnegie Mellon University, you happened to catch a glimpse of Sesame Street before you were on it. What was your first reaction when you saw this show? I was absolutely stunned. Um, and let me preface that by saying I grew up watching a lot of television in the 50s and you never saw any people of color on television right. and you, you didn't see Latin people. I'm Puerto Rican and and you weren't in the media and you, you, you kind of unconsciously began to think that you were invisible because if nobody sees you, 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 you know, you didn't know what you were going to contribute. Uh, to a society that didn't see you. So there I am and I see Susan on this urban street. You never saw urban environments either, certainly not on a kid's show. And I was absolutely stunned and uh, because she was a person, a beautiful, cheerful person of color. And then uh, uh, Burt Lancaster reciting the alphabet, believe it or not, and James Earl Jones delivering the alphabet so deliberately. I thought, is this a show that teaches lip reading or something like that? It was, it was like nothing I, I had ever seen or anyone else. And it was experimental. I mean, college kids were watching it, I think probably almost as much as uh, five and six-year-olds because it just felt so different from anything else that was on there. Uh, did it feel while you were working on it, did it feel like you were breaking new ground? Absolutely. And I think a reason was that it wasn't the usual kitty show fair mm -hmm. and that it was sophisticated and smart and it worked on 
uh, several levels. And that's why college kids liked it and adults liked it too, because they recognized that it was Gracie Slick singing this song or the Pointer Singers. You know, it was real music. And the gags were uh, uh, universal gags. You know, how people can laugh at uh, a Charlie Chaplin gag mm -hmm. today as vigorously as they did back then. The gags were that way too. And that's, uh, so I knew that there was this high level of sophistication going on as well. Well, watching the film reminded me of the amazing musical performances, not just music written specifically for the show, but I think just over time, the vagaries of my memory had blocked out or I'd forgotten that Odetta performed on the show, that Stevie Wonder <laughs> performed on the show. I mean, this was kind of an incredible variety show almost exposing people to music that they may not have heard otherwise. Uh, was it, it, I mean, it must've been exciting when somebody like that would come by. Well, it was certainly exciting when Stevie Wonder came by because everybody was on the same page, white people, black people, old people, young people, everybody grouped to Stevie Wonder. Yeah. And then when Tony Bennett came on, I that's when I went like, oh my goodness, because I, you know, Tony Bennett has always been in my life. So these these celebrities uh, uh, that that you know made their impact on American music, and then also of course when Celia Cruz, the great Cuban salsa singer came on and Tito Puente, the Puerto Rican timbalero, I really felt uh, we really are showing the breadth of American music. You were cast by John Stone, who we learn a great deal about uh, in the movie. He's not a household name, but certainly was on Sesame Street. He was one of the people very much responsible for the look and the feel and everything else of that show. What do you think that he saw in you uh, you had done Godspell off-Broadway, you were working, uh, but what was it that, that made you write for Sesame Street, do you think? I think, he, I think that my rawness appealed to him. I certainly was that. I, uh, um, I wasn't a slick performer. Um, I was from the Bronx, which was, <laughs> I was one of the, I was like the kids that they were trying to reach only older. Uh, I think that appealed to him. He was very interested in not having slick performers. He didn't want soap opera performers or, um, you know, actually, I think he liked the kind of unprofessional uh, uh, shine to me. And that's why he cast me. Do you think that uh, Sesame Street was a political show uh, because it was set on an inner city street because it showed what life was like on those streets, a mix of, of uh, people and experience and everything else. Does that make it qualify as a political show? In my heart, in my opinion, it was a political show in that it could change society. And that makes it, you know, you're not, you're teaching letters and numbers in order to, to improve on society. And Joan Cooney in the documentary said, the people who run the system can read. Therefore, everybody should learn how to read. The people who control things can read. I had never heard her say that. That was in that documentary. And I was, I was excited to hear her say that. And that's, that's it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And if that's political, then that's political. If teaching well, everybody to read is political, then there you are. <laughs> well, I think almost everything is political on some level, you know, uh, but I was interested to see in the documentary, and I didn't know this, that the state of Mississippi had a problem with Sesame Street and decided that they weren't going to air it in, in certain markets there. And then there was an an uproar and PBS stepped in. The, the, the situation was resolved fairly quickly, uh, but that also suggests that perhaps there's a political element to the show that not everyone was on board with uh, immediately. Absolutely. It's, it, and kudos to Marilyn uh, Agrello, the uh, director of yeah. the movie, to find that footage, yeah. <laughs> to find that interview of the public station in Mississippi and the the representative saying it's too frantic. It's, I mean, he, he didn't come out and say it 
there's black people on it and that's why we don't want to show it. But you, you could infer that from his uh, hesitation. And uh, so uh, the, then a commercial company, broadcasting company picked it up and broadcast it. And then the, the public TV station got on board. You talk about how when you were growing up in the 50s and watching a lot of kid shows and things, you didn't see yourself uh, represented in media on those shows very often. Did that give a certain pressure to you in terms of knowing that young boys and girls were looking up to you as a, a person of color on television that maybe they hadn't seen before and they could relate to? But there's a there's a responsibility, I guess, that comes with that. Did you feel that? Yes and no. And I think that the fact that I love television, just the, the media, you know, the medium is something that I loved. I've always loved television. I love Sid Caesar and Cal Burnett and I love Lucy and all of that kind of stuff. And I found comfort in television. Uh, that made it easy for me to be a role model because as I found comfort watching television as a kid, I assumed some other little kid was trying to find comfort as well, and I could provide that for them. So uh, I did uh, step up to the plate. They never asked me to, and I, I just thought if I was myself, I wouldn't have to put on an act on, uh, you know, on camera or off. <laughs> well, how much input would you have uh, in the character of Maria? They gave me total freedom. Mm. Total, John Stone kept saying we we want real people, and I I've told the story a million times. They put makeup on me, and and uh, uh, John Stone pulled me into the makeup room and said to the makeup artist, "I go through all the trouble of casting a real person, and you make her up to look like a cupid doll." Well, you know, I realized that they were serious about wanting a real person, and I they would dress me. I'd go out onto the floor, and John Stone would say, "Would you wear that?" Would you rear that on Third Avenue? And, you know, so he, that way he was handing the ball to me and saying, you know, putting the responsibility in, in my own hands. You're listening to my interview with Sonia Manzano, who talks about playing Maria on Sesame Street for 44 years in the new documentary, Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, now on VOD. The show tackled so many difficult subjects and, and things that weren't typically covered on children's show, the death of Mr. Hooper uh, being one of them. Uh, he was played by Will Lee, uh, obviously a friend of all of yours from the cast, but he passed away in real life. And the decision was made to address that on the television show in such a poignant way with Big Bird, this big, innocent character not really understanding what was going on and then you all were sitting around the table for people that haven't seen it or don't remember you're all sitting around the table and big bird has done drawings of all of you and you get to the drawing of mr hooper and he can't give it to him because he's passed away and you have to explain what that means such a powerful moment it's a very powerful moment in this movie take me back to that day uh when you shot this because kids shows Typically, uh, even with Sesame Street's record of addressing things that a little differently than other kids show, that was a major step forward. Yes, it was the moment I was most proud of being part of the organization. And I have to give uh, credit to producer Dulcie Singer, who prevailed because, if, as you said, Willie passed away and the front office wanted wanted her to say that uh, he went on vacation or to recast the part was another option to explain his absence. And she insisted, she said, no, if the tenet of Sesame Street is the truth, why would we shun, you know, uh, turn our backs on this? Death is not man-made. It's a natural thing that's going to happen to all of us. So she prevailed. And then Norman Stiles wrote this remarkable script. And that day we were all raw, obviously and very upset and our emotions were very close to the surface. And John Stone said, uh, we're gonna do this once. We're not gonna retape this and edit it together. So make sure everybody's on point. We're gonna sort of mark it and then we're gonna shoot it. And I think that we all, we all unconsciously held onto each other's hands and helped each other get through this. You can hear, uh, the emotion in Carol Spinney's voice who played Big Bird 
as he um, as he as he's saying his lines. And uh, uh, I, I was very thrilled that at the end of the show, uh, a baby is born, and Big Bird says, "Oh, uh, Mr. Hooper was always here, and now he's not." But look, that baby was never here, and now there is a baby here. So um, it was a wonderful uh, coda. <laughs> well, it, it's remarkable watching that footage to see the human characters interacting in the way that they do, and with with Big Bird. But the the, the Big Bird doesn't really have facial expressions. His eyes moved, but he doesn't really have facial expressions. But you really get a sense, and that is a testament to Carol Spinney's. Uh, talent and the the beauty that he brought to that character, uh, you really get a sense of what Big Bird is thinking. It's it's really quite remarkable. I know, I, and you know, you've really touched on something that's quite interesting. They're all like that. When you think of Elmo, there's nothing to him. Yeah. I, there's two ping pong balls on his on a sock, or Grover. Yeah. You know, their mouths don't even uh, flex. Yeah. They're flat. Yeah. And so when I first was on the show, I would keep looking down at the, it was disconcerting to look at Grover mm -hmm. and talk to it. And uh, Frank Oz finally said, quit looking at that man down there because they're the puppeteer is at your feet. And so I, uh, you know, I got to know them and then they became like, as if they had expressions and, and, and nuances. And it's because of their acting and because they let their, the puppeteers let their personalities come through. A few years ago, I hosted uh, press conferences with Kermit the Frog and with Miss Piggy uh, for various things that they were involved in. So I'm sitting at a big table on a stage with Kermit and Piggy, the, Muppet, the, the puppeteers are underneath. And at first I kept looking down at the puppeteers, but then you realize after a certain point, there's so much personality. They have little cameras now so that they actually look you in the eye. They look, when we would take a question from the audience, they would look at the person in the audience. It's remarkable how yeah. easily I became convinced that they were real. Right, and that they they had the point of view of the room. They could see the room as you could see the room, even though they were on a different level than you. So, so uh, in the very same way that when you read a good book, the characters live on after, you could imagine going for a drink with Oscar and what would happen? Or what if I ordered a martini with, with Grover? What, you know, what would he order? You know, because they live on. Uh, is there one moment, and we talked about the, the, the big bird, Mr. Hooper uh, day and shooting that, but is there a moment from your remarkable 44 years on Sesame Street that, that comes to mind immediately when you think back? I think, and I've said this before, I think it's the moment I walked into the studio and there was Lena Horne, the great singer, yeah. singing to Kermit, uh, uh, It's Not Easy Being Green with Kermit. And I was kind of new to the show then. So I wasn't behind the scenes. I wasn't a writer yet. And I, I remember thinking, are they singing about what I think they're singing about? Or is it just me yeah. <laughs> who thinks they're singing about race? And um, I mean, that's the beauty of that piece. You know, you you imbue that piece with whatever your feelings are and your hopes and dreams, and that's that's the measure of art. That's why you can go see the same vase by, mm -hmm. you know, at the museum a hundred times and imbue it with whatever you're going through at that moment. That's that 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 was the meaning of that moment for me. Is that why the show is immortal? I mean, generations have watched it. Uh, the show is in a different form now, but I think that people will still watch and they'll certainly watch the old shows as well. You can still see them. And they, they're they still just as effective now as they were in 1969 and when they started making them. Is that it, that there's so many layers of subtext to everything that everyone brings their own thing to it? I think that that's a part of it. And I think that you, the viewer has to participate in the viewing of the show. And I mm. think that, uh, uh, has a lot to do with it. Uh, so, I mean, 
it, it really is a, a, a crash. It was a crash of creativity that happened at this particular moment in time. I don't know that it's ever going to happen again. Yeah. Uh, why you think of why is the show beloved in Japan? And, and uh, you know, it's a very American show with its sensibility. Uh, and I think it has a certain a certain human core that everybody connects to. How do people respond to you when they meet you after having many of them grown up watching you? Maybe their kids grew up watching you as well. Well, my fans are getting older and older, I must say. <laughs> uh, and I'm, you know, it's it's wonderful that when they, you know, praise me and say wonderful things and say how much the show meant to them. And, and I, 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 I do get it. And I think that the reason is that um, a little bit of truth goes a long way. You know, when you're in a theater, if you go to the theater and an actor does something that's very truthful, it hits the back of the house. Mm -hmm. And I think that these little um, very real people with very real emotions hits the back of the house all the time. And one final question. I wanted to ask you about your audition because, and this isn't in the film, but I've read about this. You were asked to tell a scary story at your audition. Why do you think they asked you that? And do you remember what you said? Uh, I guess that that was sort of a, it was just John. This was in the John Stone. This was in the days when uh, one person could make a decision in television as opposed to 50. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, it was just him in his office. And I guess he, he, he wanted to see if I can have a conversation with a four-year-old because he said, tell a scary story to a four-year-old and that a four-year-old will understand. And so I told this story and I remembered that um, I was terrified of a cartoon when I was a kid that had a periscope in it. It was a, it was a kind of a joke on World War II. These are the cartoons I used to watch. And it was, the periscope had an eye in it and it would come out of the water and it would blink of, right and it would blink and, and chase the submarine or the ship or whatever but i was terrified of this and i would i i remembered that i remembered i thought as a kid that it was chasing me in my sleep and that's the story that i related and 44 years later i mean it, it is incredible <laughs> run on an incredible show Yes, it's been it's been it's been terrific. Uh, I'm glad I told that story. I'm glad that uh, I was around those people at that moment in time. The very very different people. Jim Henson was intrigued by the idea of using commercial techniques to teach. Mm -hmm. That was a good idea. I mean, there had been t uh, educational shows before, but they were dreary and and just somebody imparting information. It's exciting. Well, Sonia, thank you very much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, it was a pleasure to speak to you, and I hope everybody goes out and watches Street Gang. Oh, I, I think they will. It's it's a really, really lovely movie that, that I have to tell you, and I mentioned this earlier, brought back a lot more emotion in me than I expected when I turned it on. So I, I think other people will feel the same way. Good. It was a real treat talking with Sonia Manzano. She played Maria on Sesame Street for 44 years, and you can see her right now in the documentary Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, and that's on VOD. Big thanks to Sonia for joining me. Also, a big thanks to Jeff Vandermeer, author of Hummingbird Salamander, and Jonathan Meberg, the writer of A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. You can find Jeff and Jonathan's books wherever you buy fine books. As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.